Good morning, everyone. Um, lovely to see you on this Sunday morning, buoyed up by that really powerful worship. We're here for a session to talk about speaking truth to power. My name is Laura Taylor, I'm Director of Policy and Public Affairs at Christian Aid, um, and I'd like to introduce the other panellists that we'll have um, here this morning. First of all, on my far right is Matthew Van Dijvenbode. <laughs> from, uh, he's the Director of Strategy Impact from the Trussell Trust, who I'm sure many of you will know from their work with um, food banks in the UK. Um, on my immediate right is Amanda Pesimakwashi, who's our Chief Executive Officer at Christian Aid. Um, on my left is the Reverend Joel Edwards, CBE, um, who many of you know as a writer, speaker, um, and former director of the Evangelical Alliance. Um, and our final panellist, who should be with us in about 10 minutes or so, is David Lammy, MP, um, the Member of Parliament for Tottenham. Um, he had another engagement, so he'll be, he'll be slipping on uh, at the end of the panel briefly. Um, so... The format this morning is we're going to have um, about three minutes from each of our panellists just setting up their views on how we as Christians and Christian leaders can use our power and our prophetic voice to hold our elected representatives to account, particularly at a time like this when we're particularly focusing on trends in hunger, poverty and working poor in our communities here in the UK and globally. Um, we'll then have a bit of a panel discussion up here and then we'll open the floor um, to questions from all of you uh, just to engage in that discussion. I think what we'd love is for us to leave here today fired up not just by the, the worship and the, the praise we've had this morning, but really fired up about the role that we as Christians can play in our society and the wider world. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Joel to start us off just with his, his views on speaking truth to power and the age today. Well, thank you. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So, I'm a Pentecostal preacher, so the concept of speaking truth to power really appeals to me, especially historically, some of the work I've done uh, in recent years in advocacy um, and seen and understood through the lens of ministries like Desmond Tutu, uh, King, um, and others who were real champions at this. I have to confess, though, and I hope this isn't too disruptive, that the more I have thought about the theme of speaking truth to power, the more restless I became. i tell you for why. Firstly, the idea of speaking truth worries me. Partly because the question is who's truth and what is truth. And as a good old evangelical Pentecostal type, a lot of my advocacy has been underwritten by notions of speaking power to power, truth, my truth, as a power base, a propositional power base, I am right, the kind of binary situation we just heard. And I'm not sure how productive that has always been. Or maybe it is the amassing of data, knock them dead with statistics and data. The problem is, very often when I'm speaking that kind of statistical truth to political power, they know the stats already, in fact. They probably churn them out, and I'm probably using their own truths. And so the extent to which the challenge of speaking truth, either pro propositional or statistical to power, is something I'm wrestling with again. Do I, have I done that right? Am I doing it right? Does it need a revision in terms of my mental, strategic, and professional approach? The second bit, which I've, I have found a little bit 
disruptive in my own thinking, is the concept of power. Because where does power rest? And I'm beginning to wonder if when I'm speaking truth to power, i.e. my local politician, members of government, the United Nations, much of the work I did in Micah Challenge was about getting Christians globally to come behind the MDGs. Speaking truth to power, the problem is where does the power lie? And I'm actually confusing power with influence. When I send a letter to my local MP, am I actually speaking truth to a powerful person or a potentially <coughs> influential person whom I have? who may have access to power? Or is power the business people? Is power the global corporations? Um, Christian Aid recently were addressing letters to HSBC. Absolutely right. And so in speaking truth to power, I have to ask myself, how do I understand truth in the moving challenges of political power? And secondly, Am I dealing with power or influence as I address injustice, inequalities, hunger, and so on? And at the end of the day, I'm wondering if what I'm beginning to talk about is critical partnership with those who have power and influence, and how do I go about doing that? So I'm hoping to learn a little bit from the panel discussions today. Thank you, Joe. It's a great opening for the conversation. Um, Matthew, I wonder if I could go to you next and maybe talk about what you feel in your context speaking truth to power means today. Sure. Thanks, Laura. Good morning, everybody. Um, so, I'm mindful actually in reflection on what Joel's just shared, and with a quote from the civil rights activist Benjamin Todd Jealous, who talks about the power of organised money and then the power of organised people, and then those two coming together. Uh, and in fact, um, that you require the power of organised people to overcome uh, organised people to overcome the power of um, organised um, money, and that sort of sense um, of which how a movement of people can come together to speak into a situation is something that speaks, I think, um, to this question about church leaders um, speaking truth to power, the, the kind of um, the authority and the um, and the permission uh, for churches to rise up, and that's something we've seen so clearly through the food bank movement over the last, um, certainly the last 10 years. Um, just to give you a bit of the context for, for, for where we're operating right now, uh, and Joel, I hope you forgive me for using some data here. Of um, <laughs> at the moment we're talking about 14 million people in poverty in this country. Um, last year, um, uh, through uh, the Trust of Trust network of food banks, uh, we distributed 1.6 million emergency food parcels, over 500,000 of these were to children in this country, that's seen a 19% increase year on year, and that is just the tip of the iceberg. That doesn't include the independent food bank network, we represent about two thirds of the food banks in this country, uh, and nor does it include also other forms of emergency food aid, including social supermarkets, pantries, or the other kind of forms that have uh, risen up. And the reflection that we would have to say on that is that I, I don't think this is an issue of access to food. Um, certainly, uh, we're not in kind of the uh, sort of Armageddon scenarios that some people are, are prophesying around um, hard Brexit at the moment. So there is no difficulty in terms of accessing food in this country. So it's not about access to food, it's about access to money. And which is why I'm talking about the, the, the power of organised money versus the power of organised people. So when we're talking about food poverty, we're not talking about food poverty, we're talking about poverty. And it's about money in people's um, pockets. And so we are seeing, we are hearing through uh, our network of 427 food banks operating in over 
12,500 locations, um, but the reasons people are needing to use food banks is because of a lack of money coming through the benefit system, lack of money coming through um, jobs, fair paid work, fair paid hours, uh, and the cost of living, the challenges that people are finding uh, in that kind of systemic level of injustice. And our food banks want to respond to, uh, to that challenge. Uh, and the way we very often see them responding is through compassion, acts of compassion, reaching out to serve their local communities. But increasingly, we are moving much more into a mode of justice, justice com uh, combined with compassion, that challenges those systems uh, that, in a sense, uh, rob people of choice. So, for me, uh, why do we need uh, more than ever church leaders uh, to use power and voice to hold elected res um, representatives to account? It's because uh, the power of organised people can challenge that power of organised money. Great, thanks so much for that opening. Amanda, can I pass over to you? Tell me. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Okay. So I had come with my sort of prepared three minutes, this is what I'm going to say, and I've just listened to um, Reverend Edwards and, uh, and Matthew regarding statistics. And so I, let me change a little bit uh, my starting point. Um, so my truth uh, is um, when I visit a place like Ethiopia mm -hmm. and I go to a place like uh, South Omo, uh, which is looking increasingly more barren in terms of the land, and I speak to women there and they say to me, um, we don't see any rain anymore. We're experiencing drought more often. Mm -hmm. um, our livestock are dying, our crops are failing, we have no sources of income. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to try and survive. And I listen to them and I see a truth of a lived reality. I also see uh, a truth of what uh, economic decisions being made elsewhere uh, in the world uh, are having, uh, the impact of those decisions are having on real people's lived experiences. Um, second truth, I see uh, when I go to a place like South Bomo, I see climate change um, and its consequences uh, living out in the lives of these people who are already living very vulnerable experiences. So that's, that's one example of a, of a truth. And, uh, and then when I think of power, I think of a conversation that I recently had at the Vatican, at an interfaith conversation, where I was saying, who defined the Dalit community as untouchables? Mm who defined them as second or third class citizens. Uh, it was not uh, just the Indian government, it was faith leaders and faith institutions. Uh, it was faith that said, uh, you are not quite as good as everybody else. And I see power being played out in the lives of real people and the impact that it has on uh, not just their immediate lives, but the lives of their descendants, their children, their grandchildren, um, their opportunities that they could or might have had, uh, their ability for them to actually be self-sustaining. And finally, I see uh, that the impact of truth and power can actually uh, rob people of their dignity if those two are not used in a very transformative way. So, um, 
for me, and I think for Chris and Eid, when we start talking about speaking truth to power, um, what I begin to see is that climate change and impact is real. It's a tangible truth. Uh, what I see is that the debt crisis in terms of the economics is very real. Uh, in terms of statistics, we understand that over 31 countries are now experiencing debt crisis. Uh, and I want to talk about the millions of people that we see displaced <coughs> those that are living in extreme poverty. But what I want to say in my sort of final um, comments before Laura tells me to, to start is um, that I then think of what is the role of faith, what is the role of the church, um, what is the, our role as believers in a world that we see is increasingly more broken than ever before, at least during my lifetime. Right? Now, I understand that it could have been more broken before then, but in the last 50 years that I've been alive, um, then we see a world that is increasingly more broken. In this country, we heard uh, Bishop uh, Sarah talk very eloquently and speak to that particular issue of being divide, divided, um, being angry when you go out into the streets. I traveled to Wales, to Scotland, to Ireland, and, and here in England. And what you do, what you feel is a sense of volatility, a sense of hurt, disbelief, um, injustice being experienced in multiple ways. And so um, I ask myself the question, where are we as people of faith? When eight out of every ten people in the world um, identify themselves with one faith or another, where are we? What has been our role in being part of the system and the establishment that has contributed significantly to this division? How can we then look at this collective trauma and take it and turn it around into a collective healing? I think that um, we are at an age um, where we can make a real tangible difference. So uh, I guess what I would end with, uh, Laura, is um, speaking truth to power for me then becomes about um, the truth of people's lived realities. That's the truth. The truth of the experiences of injustice. Let's speak about those. Let's bring them to light. Let not people suffer in an invisible way, whether it's gender-based violence, whether it's extreme poverty, whether it's climate impact, whether it's living on the streets. Every time you're walking from um, Lower Marsh to Waterloo, the number of people that you see who are living rough increases. First it's one person, then it's two. Then before you know it, you see five, six, seven, ten. It's not acceptable. It's about taking those stories of real-life impact that's the truth for me. In terms of power, I think there's political power, I think there's religious power, I think there's power in the private sector, there are different levels. But we're in this wonderful space where democracy is supposed to be um, epitomized, right? And when religion and politics come together, you could end up with the untoward um, disruption and distress, or it could be an instrument, a marriage made in heaven, right? And uh, I can speak a little bit more later, 
on my experience where I have seen when politics and religion come together, they can actually transform things for good. And so I think uh, my call to action would be, as people of faith, this is a time for us to stand up for that truth and for that power that is going to transform us and that's going to heal the nation uh, or the nations beyond these British islands. Thank you, Amanda, and thank you to all of you for opening up that conversation. I just wanted to pick up on that idea of what can be transformational. I just wondered if, if any of you or all of you could share an example of where you have seen faith leaders using their power for good when it comes to poverty, when you've been inspired and what gives you hope. Um, and maybe any times where you felt that that voice has been lacking and you felt angry about that. I don't know, Matthew, if there's anything from your context recently that you can share. Yeah, so... Um I think uh, a few examples would come to mind, Laura, of um, instances where I think church has been leading the way in some of these areas. Um, one person who comes to mind is, is the um, recently deceased Jean Vanier. I'm sure many people will be f- familiar with his work. And um, I think what Jean Vanier embraced with this thing that Amanda spoke on very eloquently about that um, lived experience um, and drawing into uh, the lived experience of what it's like to live al- alongside the other. Um, and although not directly into the sphere of poverty, um, in terms of financial poverty, but actually speaking quite a prophetic witness into society about the value, the innate dignity that Bishop Sarah was reminding us of this morning, um, of each uh, individual um, created in the image of God, and that living alongside people um, with all sorts of um, different kind of backgrounds in terms of their, um, their abilities um, and their, um, uh, their, their potential to come together and live uh, alongside one another. So that's quite a sort of prophetic statement, I think, about the value of each individual um, when society might take quite a sort of utilitarian uh, view of the usefulness of people uh, based on their productivity. Um, another example which would um, be, be rather more kind of obvious in uh, the forefront of people's mind, I'm sure, would be some of the action of um, Archbishop Justin Welby, uh, particularly on payday loans, um, and at quite personal cost, I think, some of those interventions uh, where, uh, which yet didn't prohibit him from continuing uh, to press in on that issue, uh, where people are being um, pushed into poverty further and further by um, uh, crude business practices, um, such that he was still able to go ahead with the IPPR, um, Commission on Economic Justice, still felt able to engage in that area, despite the fact that there was a lot of pushback uh, in terms of um, the church's own standing in that space. And of course, you know, we see it on a kind of daily basis in terms of lots of the food banks on the ground will have a, a very active involvement from local churches, local church leaders and volunteers from churches, um, and many of whom will stand up for justice in, even on a kind of very local level. Um, so I'm thinking very particularly uh, down the road here, uh, St. Mark's, Battersea Rise uh, in Wandsworth, uh, a very active um, Trust and Trust food bank that's running there. And each year they um, generate... Um, a report that is based on the, the localised statistics in Wandsworth um, and show the levels of uh, food bank use um, ward by ward uh, and then present that back both with their referral partners who are referring people to food banks but also to the local um, authority of the borough, borough council to have a conversation with them about what mitigations can be put in place here in a very practical way to deal with issues of poverty and that's the church taking the lead in a local area in a very tangible way using the kind of statistics that kind of um, land well in a kind of in a, in a local um, economic context, and using that as a kind of force for good 
in, in, in their area. And, you know, Thank you, Matthew. You have spotted some friends from St. Mark's Battersea yeah. Rise in the back to me. Please, for that Amanda, from your perspective. Um, so I'm going to try and give some examples from outside of the country because I think my yeah. colleagues will more than cover the ones from here. I think that um, a, a number of examples that come to mind, uh, Laura, for me, uh, the most sort of the most recent one um, is uh, I was in Malawi, I think, in August of last year, and I met with uh, the three leaders of all the three sort of major groups of, of, of Christian churches. So the Archbishop of uh, the Catholics, I met the head, the Bishop of the, the Protestant groups, and also the leaders of uh, the evangelical groups. And it was quite interesting for me coming from Christian Aid, because normally we work with the leaders of the Protestant groups, but in Malawi they all came together, or three of them. And the conversation that we had with them was on what they're trying to do to combat early child marriages and uh, gender-based violence. Um, we went in so much detail that they were talking about how they're working with traditional leaders to claim back the young girls who were married early and they're trying to reclaim them and, uh, and rebuild their lives, uh, essentially. And uh, you could see, and what I was hearing from them was uh, their absolute determination to work and speak what they saw as a truth to power, and in this case they were talking about political power. And, and they said they were they're afraid because it's not an easy environment to work in, and, um, but that they had to speak out. And if they stood together, they could really be that voice of the community. I think that's, that's one example. And there are quite a number of different examples. I was recently talking to the bishop of, uh, from South Africa, from the South Africa Council of Churches, who said, we thought that during the anti-apartheid movement, you know, at the end of that, when um, that, you know, apartheid fell and Nelson uh, Mandela came into power, we thought our work was done. And he said, well, actually, we now have to come back and take our place within the trenches, not the physical trenches, but the spiritual uh, trenches, because we have to fight the economic injustice that is leading our country down a path uh, that we don't want to see. And the last one that I want to say, because I think all these speak to something about trust. The last one is, I remember when I was uh, younger, uh, I'm originally from Zambia, and I remember that there was a time when there was so much political upheaval in the country, the times of Dr. Kenneth Kaunda. And we reached a point where we didn't know whether we're going or coming, right? We had no food. We used to line up with coupons to go and get staple food from the shops. And when the churches got up to speak, that was the time when the politicians would stop and listen. And particularly, I remember Bishop Dijon, the late, um, really being quiet and then stepping up with all the churches and saying, this is wrong and it's going to stop. And bringing the politicians together and we saw a change. And I think for me, that's the power that the voice of faith leaders could bring to a conversation. Um, frankly speaking, I think earlier on, um, the speaker of the House of Commons talked about civility in the discourse. Right? 
and uh, and Bishop Sarah talked about uh, about healing, talked about unity, and I think the, there is a role that I have seen that when faith leaders, faith institutions take action, change happens. Thank you. Those are my examples. Thank you very much, and welcome, David. Really nice to have you with us. Um, we've, each of the speakers has given a, a few minutes. We're just talking about examples of speaking truth <coughs> now, where we feel that churches and faith leaders have given us hope. Joel, did you have anything you wanted to add? To yeah, I, I am massively um, encouraged by the volume of engagement with church leaders have on this issue of addressing inequalities <coughs> and injustices. Um, you know, if one stepped back 25, 30 years ago when I first started in a place like the Evangelical Alliance and the sparsity of engagement compared to now, I think God has taken us a long, long way. I think for me the secret is, going back to this thing Amanda was talking about, the lived lives of truth. It's the incarnational stuff, and I will do lots of examples, but whether you're talking on the global level, as we've just heard from Amanda, or the local level, spark to life a local project in my own local church, dealing with people who have ex-offenders, giving them work to do in the borough of Walthamstow. Um, and the, the authenticity which then comes from hands-on at the grassroots level and the, 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 the right to speak into local political situations and demand change is really important. And I think, once again, you know, one of the best examples we have here, not just because it's around the table, but the work which Food Bank and Trust for Trust have done gives us the incarnational right to speak truth to power and to insist on change. And I think that for me is a great backcloth against which to engage with church leaders today about, okay, how can we up our game and do this even better? Opportunities lost. Sometimes I think we haven't always been as um, coordinated in our responses to injustice as we might be. They just have to, um, uh, on my left here, and one of the things um, he instigated when he was in power was to bring church leaders, particularly from the black church community together, which I happened to chair for a while. Um, that was a great opportunity to come right into the heart of power and to speak truth. I'm not sure we actually got hold of that properly, <laughs> but you know, I think on the whole I'm really massively encouraged. Brilliant, thank you. And the perfect opportunity to bring you in, David, if that's okay. Maybe you could just share with us in, given the, the current political context, what you feel church leaders and faith leaders should be doing when it comes to speaking truth to power, what maybe frustrates you, or maybe what gives you hope in, in that context? Or anything else you'd like to share? <laughs> Look, I think there are some amazing things going on across the country in different communities. Um, amazing things that are lifting people up in hardship. Um, I think of the work that my local church, St. Mark's, does on the Andover Estate in Islington, lifting people up. Wonderful work around homelessness, um, debt. I mean, I've seen wonderful examples right across the country. However, um, I'm not that keen on patting on the back. Um, I think that um, there is an absence in Britain. Um, there is an absence of collective voice. Um, there is an absence of um, almost truth in a way. Uh, the best way to contrast this is 
um, in the African-American experience the role of faith and church um, in the evangelical uh, um, uh, tradition the role of advocacy and politics is very clear it, it seems far fuzzier in this country at a time of tremendous um, need for truth we're living in a social media age where there is a hell of a lot of noise and very little truth we're living in an age where um, of huge inequality where there is deep mistrust um, uh, from those who are not part of the asset class what I mean by that is people who own their own home in London or the South and have made quite a lot of money and those who are outside of that, I suspect most people in this room are part of that class. And if you were picking, if you were doing a poll as to which side do you think the church falls on, I think you'd probably think it falls on the side of those who have, not those who have not. So um, my, I, I, I'm afraid, I'm, I'm a little more critical, I suspect, than most of the panel have been, of um, not at a local level, because I do think there's much going on at a local level, but some, somehow, as a, as a collective voice, um, um, I, I, I'm not sure I've seen faith reach the levels that I would have liked. And, I, and then also historically, if I look back to the 1980s, although it was controversial, and I think of faith in the city, it was a moment where um, church and faith collectively reached decibel levels uh, that were commensurate to government. I, I can't think of an example since then uh, of, of that being achieved. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to see if any of the other panellists want to come back, because we did, we probably were slightly more nuanced than uh, okay. so far on the panel, but I'll see um, Amanda or Matthew or Joel, mm -hmm. anything you wanted mm -hmm. to come back on before I open the floor to questions? Um, I think, I, I think there, there's always a flip side, isn't there? And um, I think certainly sometimes um, it appears that there hasn't been a consistency of vision across church lead, senior church leaders at a national kind of level as to what uh, the diagnosis of the issue that churches are seeking to address is and a consensus around that. Um, I think sometimes that's led to multiple voices um, championing different causes in the public square, which then um, ultimately kind of um, dissipates the effect sometimes. So I think there's a, there's a chat that the video you just shown at the end of the, the breakfast this morning, I thought was very powerful about um, what can happen when people unite together, uh, which I think you're speaking of very powerfully, uh, uh, David. Um, I think in this present time, I think that there's potentially some opportunities. There are obviously dangers of how we um, talk about the implications of Brexit, um, but it's one of the areas, and, and church leaders will face um, uh, the fact that, that many of their congregation will fall on either side of that debate. But there are very real um, consequences um, coming down the line for people who are um, most vulnerable in society. And I think there is an opportunity for church leaders um, to speak up into uh, that space and um, speak truth to power around issues like the benefits freeze, um, uh, or obviously implications around universal credit, um, but also mitigations that are being put in place for certain, or, or being promised for certain members of um, of society, but not necessarily 
uh, all those who might be affected, uh, adversely affected by Brexit. So I think there is an opportunity, a window there, potentially for church leaders to speak into, understanding that it's a, it's a highly charged um, conversation. Yeah, um, just quickly, I think to uh, come back on uh, a couple of points, uh, David. The, um, I think the phrase that I, I want to throw out there is uh, sacrificing truth for political expediency. And, um, and I'm, th I'm just throwing it out there because I think, you know, I could probably give a whole lecture um, or a whole talk, and maybe, not even, maybe even the whole day on it. Poverty is not an accident. It's political. It's a political and it's a human construct. Irrespective of where or regardless of where you are in the world, the fact that you've got people sleeping on the streets here in this country, it's not an accident. It means that actually the economic system has failed um, people in this country. Right? The fact that you know, you've got UN reports saying that there's child poverty in this country is not an accident. Right? It is the economic system that has failed uh, young people. And I've given examples before of the poverty that exists elsewhere. I think the, for me where the challenge is, is uh, as churches, or let me just say as the church, the body of Christ, um, we've actually become quite good at uh, meeting that service delivery level. You know, stepping into the gap. Uh, food banks, for me, are stepping into the gap. Into the gap. We shouldn't have anybody needing to go to food banks. Speaking truth to power is taking that narrative that says people have, are having to go to food banks and challenging the political system, the leadership, the economic system, the drivers, the powers that drive the economic system, and saying this is unacceptable. That's the bridging between the truth of people's lived realities and speaking truth to those that have got the power to make a change and a difference that actually is going to be experienced at the, at the um, community level. Uh, just one last thing. Um, the, when we see that gap and you try to speak to it, I think what I find, especially coming from Christian Aid, is that it is a dangerous space to be in when you're speaking truth to power. And many times, <clears throat> you find yourself standing alone. I, I have found that when I've made comments, uh, sometimes it's just me and my, the, our staff who are saying, you know, go on, Amanda, say it, say it, say it. But everybody else is sitting there and thinking, does this mean we're not going to get the money that we need for the work? But I'll tell you what, for me personally, as Christian Aid, uh, I speak with the strength that comes from the conviction of one, knowing that, you know, what we are standing for is the right thing. Uh, as far as we're concerned. And secondly, when I go out to speak to supporters across the country, they too are looking for this collective coming together to amplify their voices so that they can be heard. It's not that people are not saying this and they don't feel the need and the urge to speak out. They do. We just need to be able to give them those channels and platform and spaces for that collective voice to be heard.
Thank you. Talking of collective voice, it would be fantastic to hear some voices from the room. So if anyone's got a question or a brief comment, it'd be great if you could raise your hand. I'll take two or three at a time. Um, it might be easy, if you don't mind, just standing up to help with the acoustics of the room, if that's okay. So I've spotted a hand here, hand here, and one at the back left. We'll take those first. And um, if it's to the whole panel or anyone specific, just let us know. Thank you. Not quite a question, but there was something ever so quick. I've been taking my notes here. I think there's a link between natural poverty and spiritual poverty. That's, that's, people can take that how they like it, but I do think there is, there is that. But also, the silence of church leaders. I think there are lots of conversations going on in different places, um, but I don't hear a, cor a corporate voice of the church speaking into governments, period. I go back a long way. Um, so, in my younger days, I, in, uh, 40 years in social work, and I've retired now, I went into many homes where there was no food, okay, no money. I think we have a uh, food bank now, which is absolutely wonderful, but it kind of supports families. There's absolute, like you, Amanda, I've seen absolute poverty. We have secondary poverty. I learned about that in sociology years ago. And I, 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 I can say, I can thank God, I think we need to remember we have a system that props people up in many ways. It's just not always as efficient as I work with people who used to be on the street to help them, to help them navigate the system. It, it's it's, it's mind-blowing, actually. So it's an uncoordinated system. And there's CAP. But what I used to have when I was young was, was um, people who went moneylenders who used to take people's benefits books and lend them at an exorbitant rate. They've now become legal. And they're advertising on television at 300% rate. Why is nobody dealing with that? My name is Robert Sammy, I'm a, a vicar in Surbiton. And my question would be for the panel uh, an example would be climate change is something we're concerned about. And there was the power of uh, children in Child and Sweden going on strike and not turning up to school on a Friday. And part of me wondered. Would this be a really good thing? So for the panel, do you think, if they'd heard a vicar, I'm a chair of governors at school, encouraging children to go on strike and not go on Friday because climate change is a really important issue, would they have thought that's a great way of speaking truth to power or would they have thought that's irresponsible, just, just we'll have to do it in smaller channels? Fantastic, great, thank you. And one last question. Hi, I'm Julie Jones. I um, work here in Westminster on the APPG Freedom of Religion and Belief. I was very interested in some of the comments that were made. Um, we look at any faith or belief that is in trouble, that is in poverty, that's being persecuted, and we work with MPs, and we actually are the link of working with them to be able to help and get voices heard to see the things that are going wrong in this country, but also globally, um, on a scale where we can um, help um, get a voice heard to, to those members. So for anybody that feels like on the panel that there isn't a voice heard, or that things aren't happening, um, 200 years ago, we would call things religious Bibles. We are the second largest APPG there are 250 because there are that many MPs actually interested in things like this that are looking at Christianity, that are looking at any form of religion or, or anything where people are being persecuted, where they're deprived. And we, 
we want to know about these things and have those discussions. And so we are here actually to help. Okay. Thanks very much. I'm going to come back to the panelists. Maybe working left or right. Any quick reflections on spiritual poverty as well as natural poverty, climate strikes, uh, and persecution? Uh, David, well, clearly, I mean, I think there's a lot of spiritual poverty. There's a lot of falsehoods. Um, the fact that mental health is as high as it is amongst our young people is indicative of the direction that society is going. Um, I'm not sure how present the church is in the national conversation for Britain's parents. And I'm not now just talking about Christian parents. Um, I, I, so I come back to my sort of feeling, which I can't, which it feels to me, God's telling me to say this, that things are just too cosy, they're too comfortable. Um, last week I was at Sangat. I was with a lot of Iranians who said they were Christians who want to come to this country. I sat and broke down in tears with a mother of an autistic child who was amongst them. And her, her seven-year-old autistic child was sort of just wandering around this huge refugee camp. These are people who want to come to our country, but because of the way we deploy our refugee and asylum system, are held at at arm's length across the Mediterranean and they have to take into their own hands getting across the sea and many of them drowning and dying on the way. Um, given that Jesus was the refugee, um, I can't think of a more important issue than that for us to be taking up. Yet somehow it's still happening and has now been going on for many years. And so, um, for me, it's not just the I, I run several APPGs. It's not just the fact of an APPG. It's, it's the action that's required. And somehow there's a gap between those who need us and our ability to collectively respond. Um, so, at a time when children are murdering themselves in London, when social media is prolific, when children are accessing porn, yes. in, uh, who are children, are developing, uh, and, and they have these smartphones and it's very hard, and we, we hand it to parents to exercise, I don't know how they're meant to control that, when it's the technology companies. These things to me speak to an ability for, for faith to speak not just truth, but to demand action. Mm -hmm. And um, climate change is interesting because I think that those young people have managed to put climate change back on the political agenda at a time when the country seemed only to want to talk about Brexit. So whatever they did was effective in putting it back onto the agenda. And so maybe we should learn something from the young people who got frustrated. Yeah, there has to be inevitably a relationship, a correlation between spirituality and the health of the nation. Our trick is to find 
political language which is understood beyond the world of the church, and that's part of the challenge. I think those feeds back into the kind of thing which David is calling for. And I think it's great, David, that you have not lost your appetite to see the church more effective. I hope more politicians have that hunger to hear and see the church. On the other hand, I still remain optimistic about where God is going with the church, because I don't want to see the politicization of the church, as in America, but I do want us to find a way of aggregating all that's happening on the ground in order to have a much more effective and authentic global and strategic voice about some of the issues which matter. And I think to give consent to young people behind climate change or whatever the issue is has to be right. Obviously, we've got to balance. Encourage them. Encourage them, yeah. Would you encourage them? Yeah, absolutely. And the balance has to be right. It's not just in Sweden, it's also here in the UK. One looks at Hong Kong and see what's happening there, and often it's young people who are in the vanguard of this kind of radical movement, and we should encourage that and also be responsible in the process. Yeah, religious freedom, huge issue, and I think the church is faced with a significant challenge. How do we move beyond the specificity of Christian persecution, which is very rife? Over 70% of the world's population have their religious freedom marginalized, according to the Pew Foundation, and I think Christians here have a responsibility to raise a voice, not only for Christians, but for suffering which is happening around the world. The APPG is doing a great job to that extent, so I would endorse the work you guys are doing. Thank you. Uh, I was, I'll skip one of the questions just a second, because I think it's already been addressed. I think on the, on, the, on the spiritual poverty, I would probably say this, that um, when you see a society where intolerance is in, increasing and tolerance is decreasing, um, when you see the type of uh, divisions, it's not just the divisions, it's how we express uh, our, our differences, uh, increase in disrespect, uh, in re- reduction, you know, increase in exclusivity rather than inclusion, um, the things that we hold dear to in terms of democratic values and principles, um, not being exhibited by all different people in different positions of uh, leadership, both in the church uh, and, um, and in politics, then you have to, you'd have to conclude that there's a spiritual brokenness mm-hmm. that is not quite in the right place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's, it would be easy for me to just speak of what is broken. For me, I really want to emphasize that this is a moment in time. It really is a moment in time for this generation, for us. And uh, the role that we can play as people of faith in bringing that healing, bringing back meaning, deeper meaning, into those values of unity, values of inclusion, values of, uh, of tolerance, uh, that I think can speak to a closer relationship between our spiritual being and our lived experiences. So I think that's, uh, that's what I would say. I think, I was smiling, Robert, when you talked about um, the school children, because you know, we've talked about this quite a bit in Christianity, and I can see some of my team uh, laughing. <clears throat> I, you know, when I was at university, so I was at school, I think I was over 18, I remember that almost every single year in Zambia, we were the streets almost every single year we came out to talk peacefully uh, peaceful uh, demonstrations 
to really um, show our our dissatisfaction um, with the political establishment and the policies that were impacting negatively on, on our families. I think the climate change issue is a global existential issue for human beings and for planets. Um, I think what is sad is that it had to take young people uh, from schools to come out and tell us, the adults, we should know better um, to really focus our attention not just on one or two things, but on this thing that is saying, look, while you are fighting over, if I can mention the, the B word, you know, while you're fighting over Brexit, um, the ship is sinking. It's a global one, and you need to pay attention to it. So I'm not answering your question directly, but I guess what I'm saying is that um, there, there comes a time when parents... Answer children, my question directly. <laughs> I think that it's really important that children have a voice. But should I encourage it? I think you should encourage children to have a voice. And leave <laughs> I think you should encourage children <laughs> to have a voice. I think that in terms of in, uh, getting What's them out of school... Isn't that too cosy? If I let you go, that's too cosy. We're all saying go. Should I, I'm a chair of governors at school, should I be encouraging them to leave or whatever the next demonstration is Friday at 11? You should liaise with the teacher. But if I win them over... Okay, I think what you need to be doing is having a conversation with their parents because they're children. Yeah, yeah. You need to be having a conversation with their parents. If you and the parents come together and say, yes, this is what we want to do, then you know that you've got that collective consensus that allows you to be in that space. Thank you for generously answering. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, again, some of the points have been covered quite extensively, but I, I think on the natural poverty and spiritual poverty points, um, it would be my experience that I think sometimes we sort of other spiritual poverty and actually we find spiritual poverty within ourselves. And I think it would be the experience that I would have had touring around many of our food banks around the UK that for many of the volunteers who volunteer week in, week out, actually they find Christ in what would be conceived as the poor. Um, and, and therefore it reveals something to them of their own spiritual poverty uh, and deepens their own sense of um, uh, compassion and relationship with God through that experience of service, um, which I think is an incredibly valuable thing, um, but more valuable when that then transforms uh, and embraces not just compassion, but also justice. And I think you also referenced you know, some of the failures in the system uh, and, and feedback stepping into the gap a little bit. And you know, just to be very clear, we're working towards a future where there's no longer a need for, for feedbacks in the UK. We don't want to exist. Uh, and that's why we're asking people to take action on various uh, fronts, in, including uh, just launching a campaign five weeks too long. Look it up on Twitter if you, if you have a chance, hashtag five weeks too long, um, about the, uh, the five-week wait for universal credit and, and the, the adverse effect that's having in terms of pushing people into needing to take extreme measures just to feed their, their households. Um, so absolutely standing up for justice, but that justice is brought about through an act of compassion uh, where actually you meet Christ uh, in the other. Uh, and on your um, point, um, I, I'm not sure the trust or trust would have a view on that, but personally, uh, I, I would sit with Amanda. I think she's, uh, she's expressed that very well about the um, uh, apps. I, I think it's, it's, it's also, uh, um, I think your role as government could be to, to make sure that there is um, um, freedom of information for the children to access so that they can make an informed choice and have that conversation <coughs> with their parents. 
Brilliant, thank you. We've got one, kind of one more round of questions. So um, uh, there's three more hands in the <coughs> So one at the front, in the middle, and then at the back. Thank you. Please introduce yourself in a, a short question, thanks. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, good morning everyone. Uh, my name is Nathaniel. I'm currently a student at Southampton University studying PP. Um, my question is sort of a follow-up to Rob's on the impact of children striking uh, at school. It's sort of like if, if train drivers wanted to go on strike and then they sort of liaise with passengers about how can we strike so it's not disruptive. It's a, it defeats the whole point. Um, I think if you're hot, let's be hot. If we're cold, let's be cold. If you want to make an impact, I, I don't agree with the strikes personally, but um, I think if you want to make a, if you want to strike, if you want to make an impact, if you want your voices to be heard, then uh, you can't really ask for it. Um, I'm part of an, an organisation, Operation Blackfoot, and they do some great work. Check them out. Um, they say power is given. Sorry, power is never given. It's always taken. Um, you can't ask, you can't sort of give permission to go on strike. If all of a sudden you're consulting with teachers and parents and, oh, can they do this? And Then it's just, it's just a school trip out. That's really what it is. Um, you know, the work you're supposed to do on Friday or do on Thursday or go do on Monday, the impact is not felt if it's sort of authorised or permitted. Um, so my question, sorry, that was more of a My question is, how, what's then the point of going on strike if your strike does not have as much impact? Sorry, that was really long, but thank you. Um, I just, uh, I'm Mary from Winchester, um, heard a lot about divisions, differences, healing, and it sounds really sometimes a bit self-satisfied, because I went to an LGBT conference a couple of weeks ago and heard about the terrible trauma that the church has caused these people, people have uh, committed suicide, have had breakdowns, they've lost their faith. So I think as we're talking about divisions in the world, we need to be looking at divisions in our church and trying to move <coughs> and heal them. Thank you. Hi there, Gareth Wallace from World Vision. I was in this room last night hosting an event. It's great to be back in the same room today with Christian Aid. Are we being a little unoptimistic here? I know I've pre in previous slides shared a platform with David on alcohol and the problems around minimum unit pricing. Uh, Joel was my boss and we love the gambling and changing the government's mind on that and we've worked with the Trust and Trust in the past with uh, poverty in, in, in our local communities. It, would this even have happened 20, 30 years ago? Is there, yes, there's lots more to do, but isn't it exciting that so many Christian charities and churches are championing this idea of both uh, campaigning and lobbying on issues but also of becoming those elected representatives whom we lobby as well. Great, right. thanks. Um, one more question, quickly. Oh, okay. Um, I'm working in the National Women's um, Network on the Faith Community Forum, and increasingly uh, there are so many churches, so many different faiths coming together and talking, and I really do feel that it's a safe space, and, it, and I think it's a powerful way of us finding a voice. Um, I, I really do think that we can shine brighter and we can reach further and we can build unity when we do stand together. I think we can just do more. And I think there is a, an awful lot of goodwill, people wanting. We might not have effectively found that united voice yet, but I think, <coughs> I think people are, are seeking it. And um, interfaith groups are growing, or they're popping up all over the country. And I think that is a safe space for... Um, government and for MPs and for business people to come and actually engage and interact I think it could be much more powerful than it is but it's definitely growing 
Thank you for that set of questions. Um, as we're getting a bit short of time, I'm going to go right to left this time and maybe just pick one or two questions that you would like to answer in a, in a minute or two as your kind of wrap up, if that's all right. Yeah, I think almost uh, the three uh, last questions is, is uh, fall into one category for me, which is a, a little bit around unity and coming together uh, as a case for optimism, Gareth, to your point. Um, I think that that unity in, in, in the cause of social action is what we see through food metrics. started in a very Christian kind of context, very church-based, and now welcome volunteers from all backgrounds, um, all faith traditions and none. Um, and there is therefore, I think, a, a, a sort of collaboration there. And actually, in terms of the divisions within the church, I think sometimes um, that collaboration on social action, social justice, social change can be a point of um, coming together to help then people get alongside each other and start conversations about some of those divisions that exist. Thanks. Um, so if I'm going to pick just one, I probably want to talk about optimism. And um, so yes and no would be my, my, my response to you. I think that um, the, the type of problem that we ca- we're currently facing uh, is is so big that actually we need to try to understand the enormity of its consequence and impact Um, so that when we do respond in terms of speaking truth to power, in terms of voice, we need that to be uh, proportionate in response. So um, I think the optimism comes from the fact that I think we do understand the challenges that we're facing. Uh, yes, there's still a number that we don't want to name, that we don't want to throw into the conversations. I know that, for example, in Christian age, we're having conversations around decolonization, for example. What does that mean? What does it look like? We're having conversations about invisible power. How is that expressed? You know, who is at the receiving end? Who gives? What power does each one of us as individuals actually hold? Because unless we understand that from ourselves as individuals and as organizations, how can we then go out there and speak truth to power when we don't understand and recognize and name our own power as individuals mm-hmm. and as an organization? This comes, I think, to your uh, comment around divisions in our church. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's divisions in our own organizations. It's divisions in our own minds. I think it's really important to understand that. I think the optimism comes from our desire and our absolute commitment to engage in that conversation and to know that there is a solution. We might not know the full uh, content of the solution, but the, our willingness to overcome. For me, uh, I want to end with this. When I go to Wales, this is the way I started. When I go to Scotland, when I visit the supporters in the different churches, when I'm in Malawi, I'm in Bolivia, when I'm in uh, Zimbabwe, what I see consistently is a thread that is defying the odds. It's a thread of a spirit of people that really refuses to be broken and says, let's take very you know, pragmatic steps to try and deal with it. So we're addressing the services uh, in terms of poverty, in terms of those that are hard to reach, in terms of those that are displaced through humanitarian conflict. You saw our campaign on um, um, the British government selling arms to Saudi Arabia and the impact that that is having in Yemen. We were not shy. We were brave and courageous and stood out there and said, this has got to stop. Right? We are speaking truth to power and we are doing that with support from 
the churches and from the and I think uh, from from the communities and I think that we can do more. So I guess what I'm calling for, if I uh, I wouldn't be an activist if I didn't call if I didn't make a call to action. Uh, my call to action is as faith leaders. Um, let's come from behind the corridors, behind the scenes, where I know you're, we're doing a lot of work. Let's unite, amplify our voices, because when we've done that before, Jubilee Debt Campaign, we make change happen. So there's an opportunity for us to do so. Thank you. Yeah, so, so the church is on a journey. And I'm excited by the journey. I'm dissatisfied and excited. So, once again, you know, I want politicians like David to constantly provoke us to do more, to have a stronger voice, to have a stronger presence. But equally, I want to recognise what God is and has been doing over the past 20 years in taking us on a very, very important journey. And so I don't want to get into the politicisation of the church's <coughs> voice, but I want it to be a prophetic voice. And neither do I want it just to be a voice of oppositionalism for its own sake, but how do you get a voice which actually sees change? And so I was excited to be a part of Michael Challenge, working in coalition with many Christian organisations and churches, not only here in the UK but across the world, in trying to find out how do we, not necessarily on the LGBTQ thing, but on the church's message across generally, how do you get division uh, to look like uh, diversity? Uh, and the kind of non-binary challenge we heard from the Bishop of London this morning, which I thought was just such an excellent uh, context for where we are just now. And so to me, it's are we willing to, to move into a form of advocacy, a speaking truth to power, which is willing to take the risk of becoming critical friends? The, the character I've been thinking of um, recently is Nathan the Prophet, 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you're into Bible. Um, and his approach to David, having committed a hyena sin of adultery and murder and conspiracy to murder, you name it, it's the worst thing in the whole Bible. And God sends Nathan to speak to David, and his whole task is to tell him a story, to speak of a lived truth of the person who he has killed. And to get the power, David, to see for himself, to internalize his own wrong, and to see that it is in his interest and the interest of the people he's leading to change. That, I think, is the task of speaking truth to power. And I suspect we do that at the local level as we accrue the credentials and the authenticity through our work on the ground locally to amble up to government, to amble up to our local council and say, we is here, we is here doing important stuff Therefore, we have the right to speak because we are speaking in the interest of everyone. And you, Mr. Powerful, Miss Powerful, you have a mandate from us to do the right thing. Catholics call the common good. And that's what we're about. And to recognize, again, it's a long road. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes patience, intentionality, and a lot of perseverance to get there. And then when you get there, it moves again, doesn't it? <laughs> I think there is a bit of a tension, and I think it's important to hold that tension um, in, a, in, a, in a healthy way, as the Bishop of London was suggesting. And the tension that, that, that I can feel is that there's a slight tension between Joel's insistence that he doesn't want to see the politicisation of the church 
and my frustration because I believe that the church has to be more in that place than I suspect you. Oh, we are, yeah. And then you used another word, which is prophetic. And I'm, I'm looking for those prophets uh, because I think those prophets are very, very necessary. And let me just explain what I, what I mean by that. When we've got tremendous problems. Any global leader has an intray of huge issues at this point in time. You've got climate change heating up the planet. We have a fourth and fifth industrial revolution um, that means that we're in developed countries losing jobs, certainly low-skill jobs, at a huge rate. Um, we've got rising inequality between those who have and those who have not. Uh, these are huge, big problems. Um, and, um, and this is where I get political, we have some false gods that would ascribe those problems to um, the other. If you've lost your job, if you're poor, if your children are less well off than you, um, if you're fleeing continents because of climate change, the real problem is your neighbours who are different to you, who stole your job or came into your country illegally. It's an old tune, it's as old as the Bible, but it works. And I think that leads us into a far more dangerous place than we would have been 20, 30, 14 years ago. Now here's the hope. The hope is that if you looked at the beginning of the 20th century, um, I would have thought vast swathes of this room would not be here. If you were working class, you were in a steelwork, down a mine, in a factory, subjugated to some extent by your boss, and that movement for working people birthed my political party particularly. If you're a woman, you had absolutely no control over your own body, over your own destiny. Um, it took people like Emily Pankhurst to give you the right to vote to begin to assert that. If you were black or brown, you were colonised, um, or worse, enslaved. And if you were LGBTQ, um, well, uh, even confessing to the person that you loved would, would lead to probably imprisonment. By the end of the 20th century, um, all of those huge groups, that's a vast amount of humankind, <coughs> had begun to equalise that possibility and be able to say in their lifetime by the end of the 20th century, I can be who I want to be, who I'm destined to be. That's a great cause for celebration and hope. And it's down to some very prophetic souls. <coughs> Mandela, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, um, the Pankhurst sisters, and many, many others. People who were tremendously brave, um, tremendously fierce, tremendously uncompromising um, in insisting um, social justice is where we need to go. And I was thinking of, I was thinking of Trevor Huddleston as I call to mind Mandela. The problem is, as we sit here in 2019, there are groups of very powerful individuals who want to turn back the clock. And the question for people of faith is, do we let them? 